Chuck Swindoll tells the joke about a man born and brought up so far back in the hills of Appalachia that he had never seen the sights of a modern city. He and his wife had one son whom they creatively nicknamed Junior. When Junior turned 16, his father decided that they all should see the city. They had saved up their money for three years and now had enough to spend several days seeing the sights of the big city. So they loaded up the old pickup truck and headed down the road. When they pulled up in front of the fancy hotel, Papa began to get a little nervous. So he told Mama to stay in the truck while they checked out the situation. Papa and Junior walked into the grand lobby with eyes as wide as saucers. They looked up three stories to a gigantic chandelier. Off to the right was an enormous waterfall, and down below them was an indoor skating rink. They turned around and watched as people would walk up to a wall and push a button. The wall opened, and they would walk inside while the doors closed behind them. Well, about that time, a wrinkled old lady with a cane shuffled up to the doors and pushed the button. The doors opened, and she hobbled into the little room. No one else stepped inside with her, so the doors closed behind her. Not more than a minute later, the same doors opened, and there stood the most beautiful woman in her early twenties, with high heels, shapely body, and lovely face. Papa nudged Junior and mumbled, Hey, Junior, go get Mama. The transformation that takes place for the nation of Israel between Zechariah chapter 11 and Zechariah chapter 12 is even more amazing and mystifying. Zechariah 11 is all about a doomed flock about to be destroyed while Zechariah 12 is about a devoted flock about to be delivered. The lessons are simple. Zechariah 11, reject the Savior and reap the consequences. Zechariah 12, accept the Savior and enjoy the benefits. And there are two major benefits for accepting the Savior in Zechariah 12. The first benefit is that the Savior protects his people in times of submission. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. When we come to the last few chapters of Zechariah, we find that theologians have debated these passages throughout church history. The basic question is, are these prophecies fulfilled in a future ethnic Israel living in the promised land, or are they fulfilled in the church today? Your theological framework will color your interpretation of Zechariah 12. There are many fine Christian scholars who believe that these prophecies refer to the blessings God gives the church today. In order to interpret the prophecies for the church, they must take the references to Jerusalem and Israel as figures of speech for the church and Christians. They argue that God is finished with the nation of Israel, according to Zechariah 11, 
and God is now working through the church until Christ returns. Christians who advocate this theological framework for prophecy are called postmillennialists or amillennialists. Amillennialism is more accurately defined as realized millennialism since they believe that the kingdom prophecies are realized in the church today. Postmillennialism believes that Christ will return after the church establishes the kingdom of God here on earth. I do not believe either of these theological frameworks for interpreting prophecy. I believe these prophecies will be fulfilled in ethnic Israel living in the promised land. Now, my friends, this is a family dispute. We are all part of the same family of God, and we will spend eternity together with Christ. However, I believe realized millennialism and post-millennialism are incorrect. Let me briefly explain why. The first reason is consistency. If we have been understanding the first nine chapters of Zechariah as referring to Jerusalem when it says Jerusalem, then why not be consistent in the last three chapters? Secondly, there is not a more Jewish chapter in all of Zechariah than Zechariah 12. The prophet talks about Jerusalem and Judah extensively but he also names tribal clans like David, Nathan, and Levi, which have no meaning apart from ethnic Israel. Third, the old adage is still true. If the plain sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense. If you read these chapters at face value without any pre-imposed theological framework, you would never think of the church today. You would think of the nation of Israel. Undoubtedly, Zechariah and the people of his day believed these were promises for the future of their nation, the nation of Israel. So it's better to take the plain meaning of the text. We don't have to superimpose an outside theological grid on the text. Therefore, the fulfillment of these prophecies awaits the end of this age, when Christ shall return to this earth to set up his kingdom. The expression, on that day, which is used 16 times in these chapters, refers to the day when Jesus Christ returns to this earth as king. With that in mind, notice the benefits of the Savior's protection for the nation of Israel in these end times. The Savior protects his people by establishing them in verses 1 through 3. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the nations around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day 
that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. There is coming a day when the nations of this world will gather to fight against Jerusalem and Israel. And God has a burden concerning Israel that he shares in these verses. The armies of this world will unite to wage war against Israel in that day. The war is called elsewhere in scripture Armageddon. But God promises to protect his people by establishing them firmly in the land in that day. He pictures them like a heavy stone which severely injures anyone who tries to pick it up, and like a cup of wine which everyone wants to drink, but when they drink the cup, they stumble into oblivion. The war of Armageddon will be a war against Israel, and God will be there to protect his people just as he promised 2,500 years ago. Secondly, the Savior protects his people by delivering them in verses 4 and 5. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. God will miraculously deliver Israel. He will blind the eyes of the enemy armies so that they cannot wage war. And he will open the eyes of his people so that they can see their God in all his glory. I like the way the NIV translates verse 5. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Israel are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. At last, the nation of Israel will turn to God in faith. God brings them to the end of their rope. They have no one else and nowhere else to turn because everyone is against them. And when their cause is hopeless, at last they turn in dependence upon God, and he delivers them from their enemies. Aren't we so often just like Israel? We, too, are strong because the Lord Almighty is our God. It is God's strength that matters in our times of trouble just as it was for the nation of Israel. And sometimes God has to bring us to the end of ourselves before we will turn to him. You see, the Savior protects us in times of submission when we depend upon God. Don't fight him today, because it, is, it only makes it more painful when you finally learn to surrender to his will and trust his plan, my friends. Third, the Savior protects his people 
by igniting them, by igniting them in verses 6 and 7. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. So God will light a fire under the Jews. The picture is that of Jews scattered around the world, pursuing their own dreams and ambitions. But suddenly, the whole world turns against them. As they look to the Lord for deliverance, they will be ignited by his flame to consume everyone around them. When God protects his people, there will be no questions of superiority or inferiority. No one will think that they were better than someone else, and so were victorious by their own merits. They will know it is the Lord who gives them strength. Notice verse 7. The defenseless people living out in the countryside or scattered throughout the land will be protected just like the well-defended city of Jerusalem. Israel today, 21st century, relies on her military might, but she will one day learn the lesson that God doesn't need great walls, God doesn't need powerful armies, God doesn't need fighter jets or scud missiles, God doesn't need the Iron Dome to protect Israel. He can consume the enemy like a torch in the middle of dry sheaves of hay. Poof! And it's gone. Fourth, the Savior protects his people by strengthening them in verses 8 and 9. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God will defend the city of Jerusalem in that day by making the one who is feeble, wimpy, scared, into a, into a warrior as mighty as King David, the greatest warrior of Israel's history. God will destroy the enemies of Jerusalem by using wimps and whiners to win his war. He strengthens his people when he calls them to do his work. There is hope for all of us, then, in the service of such a great king. At last, Israel will submit to God as all the nations of this world unite to wipe her out. She will have no one but God to turn to, and he will come through for her just as he promised. This great war will be a mighty victory for Israel. It will be a greater victory than any conquest of King David. 
It will be greater than any victory by the Maccabees. The victory will be greater than the Six-Day War or the War over Iraq. This will be the greatest victory of all history as God delivers his people. But it will come only when they finally submit to their Messiah. The Savior protects his people in times of submission, and the Savior cleanses his people in times of admission. Chapter 12, verse 10 through 13, 1. The nation of Israel will not have much time to exult in their victory before they must mourn for their sin. The Lord not only protects those who submit to him, he cleanses those who admit their guilt to him. Frederick Buchner tells a story in one of his sermons about a, a boy who was about 12 or 13 years of age, who in a fit of anger got a gun and shot his father. When the authorities asked the boy why he had done such a horrible thing, he said that it was because he could not stand his father. He said that his father demanded too much from him and was never satisfied. He hated his father. The boy was placed in a correctional institution. A guard was walking down the hall late one night when he heard sounds coming from the boy's room and stopped to listen. The words that he heard the boy sobbing out in the dark of the night were, I want my father. I want my father. Buchner says, That is a modern parable of the sinner alienated from God. There are those times of dark insight into our souls which we might never share even with our closest friends. There are those times when we see ourselves for what we really are, filthy sinners. There are those times when we admit our own dirtiness to ourselves and to God. and We are alienated from him because of our sin, because of our rejection of God. And yet we are saying in our souls, I want my Father, I want my Father. I want God. What we need in those times is cleansing. And cleansing is what Israel most needed as well. And cleansing is what God does for us in those times of brokenness and despair. My friends, cleansing comes by the spirit of divine grace Zechariah 12, verse 10. Listen to what God says in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The spirit of grace and supplication is the Holy Spirit of God. God, the Holy Spirit, 
will bring a new disposition of grace and favor into the lives of Israel at that time. And they will come alive with his work of gracious salvation. There is a glorious grand theme which runs throughout the Old Testament prophets about the fact that God will one day pour out his spirit upon the nation and they will believe in Jesus Christ. Joel 2, 28-29 tells us that God will pour out his spirit upon the nation of Israel. But it's important to notice that several verses later in Joel's prophecy, after the sun has been darkened, after the moon has been turned into blood, that the great and terrible day of the Lord comes when he pours out his wrath upon this world. Joel prophesies in Joel 2.32 that there will be Israelites who call upon the name of the Lord and are saved during that time of terrible judgment. These Jews will be given the Holy Spirit on that day. You see, apart from the Spirit's work of grace in any life, now or then, there can be no salvation for any of us. Zechariah predicts what will happen when the Spirit opens their eyes. The Spirit of grace and supplication takes the blinders off. God says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They will look on God whom they have pierced. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh... We could not understand this passage very well. Jesus was fully God. He was God come to die for our sins. And that is why Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. When the soldier thrusts the spear into the side of Jesus on the cross, he pierced the heart of Almighty God. There's coming a day when under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, Israel will see with eyes opened by the Spirit what they did to the Messiah. Literally, the text would be better translated, they will look to or toward the one they have pierced rather than on the one they have pierced. I think that Israel will see by faith before they see by sight. They will look to Jesus as their Messiah, not on Jesus at his return. That is, I think they respond to the ministry of the Spirit before Jesus Christ returns, and they are ready and waiting when he comes back with his armies to claim his kingdom. You see, Revelation 7 verses 4 through 8 tells us that there will be 144,000 Jews protected during those days and that many will believe through the ministry of the two witnesses in Revelation 11:13. They will understand the depths of their own sin and they will mourn the death of their Messiah. It is interesting that the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the words beloved and firstborn son. These are the very words that the New Testament uses to refer to Jesus Christ. 
at the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved, same Greek word as in Zechariah, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3, 17. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation using the same Greek word used here in the Greek translation of Zechariah. My friends, cleansing for the nation of Israel comes when the spirit of grace and supplication is poured out upon them in all his fullness. The only way we can have cleansing today is when the Spirit of God's wonderful, matchless, exquisite grace is poured out in our lives, cleansing us from the dirtiness of our sin. We look to Jesus, and the Spirit cleanses us from our sin. (coughs) But, But we must remember that cleansing comes with an attitude of personal mourning with an attitude of personal mourning in verses 11 to 14. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hedadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. The nation will mourn on that day, like they mourned at Hedadrimon near the plain of Megiddo. Armageddon means the hill of Megiddo. Hedadrimon was where the nation mourned the death of their last godly king Josiah in Second Chronicles 35. Just a few years before, they went into captivity to the Babylonians. The Hebrew word for mourn literally means to beat on one's breast. Mourning is personal. Each family clan mourned by itself. In fact, each person ultimately mourns over sin alone. Friends, when you face the Savior with your sin, you face him one-on-one. Your parents cannot face him for you. Your friends cannot face him for you. Your wife or your husband cannot face Jesus for you. You must face him alone with your sin. Israel must come face to face one day with the sin of killing their Savior. And they will mourn with broken hearts. Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous atheist, wrote about his despair as an atheist. He said, Have you not heard of the man who lit a lamp on a bright morning and went to the marketplace crying ceaselessly, I seek God, I seek God. They laughed, and the man sprang into their midst and looked daggers at them. Where is your God, he cried. I will tell you, 
We have killed him, you and I. We are his killers. That's the despair of the atheist. And it is something like the great despair that will seize the Jews one day when they understand what they have done. Yet there is one major difference between the despair of the atheist and the mourning of the Jews. God did not stay dead. God did not stay dead. God will offer his grace to the Jews, and they will be cleansed of their sin. The same is true for us. We killed Jesus too. Our sin executed our Savior. But Jesus did not stay dead, so we can look to him to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus said in Matthew 24:30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He is coming again, this one whom we mourn. He is coming again, this one whom they pierced. This time he will come in power and glory to cleanse the world of sin. All is not lost for the Jew. All is not lost for you and me, my friends. The sinner does not need to despair because the Savior specializes in saving sinners. So don't despair. Look to Jesus. His grace is greater than your greatest sin. Look to Jesus and live. Now look at Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. The chapter division is unfortunate here because this verse, verse 1 of chapter 13, really culminates the point of the previous verses. Cleansing comes from the fountain of spiritual life. Zechariah 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. Ah, there is the blessed hope of the sinner, whether Jew or Gentile. Without the fountain, there is only despair for anyone. A view of the crucified Savior brings repentance. But without verse 1 of chapter 13, we are left with only the gloom of our sin and the death of our Savior. A fountain is opened by the grace of God. I believe that this prophecy will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and the nation of Israel responds in national repentance. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans eleven twenty six and 27 that all Israel will be saved when I take away their sins. Israel, Paul argues in Romans 11, has been temporarily set aside to offer God's grace to the Gentiles, to us. But God will restore them again one day. 
all Israel is the remnant protected by God throughout the Great Tribulation. It is all Israel alive at the return of Christ who will turn to him for cleansing from their sin, and a fountain will be opened to clean them up by God's grace. Repentance always precedes cleansing. After the morning comes the cleansing. The wonderful, matchless grace of our loving Lord Jesus Christ has provided a fountain to wash away the stains of our sins. Will you come to bathe in that fountain today? The fountain is there for you, as it will be there for Israel when Christ returns. Perhaps, perhaps this is what the Apostle John thought about in his life. When he was watching the crucifixion, and he saw the spear pierce the side of Christ, and out of his side flowed blood and water. And John clearly reflects on that reality later in his life. And he quotes from Zechariah, They shall look on him whom they pierced. John 19.37 Perhaps later he thought about the wondrous fountain of Christ's cleansing blood, free to all who will bathe in its flow. Accept the Savior and enjoy his benefits. Israel will learn this lesson one day. But what does all of this have to do with us today? Let me draw two personal applications to our lives today, my friends. One, the Savior protects us in times of submission. Are you proud of your own abilities to make your way in this world? So was Israel. They rejected the Savior when he came because he interfered with their plans. For 2,000 years they have reaped the consequences of that decision. God must ultimately bring us to the end of ourselves to see the beginning of our salvation in him. The Savior is there for you when you are ready to submit to him. So turn to Jesus and receive his grace. Two, the Savior cleanses us in times of admission. Have you ever looked into the mirror and jumped at what you saw? And I'm not talking about a physical mirror or physical images. I'm talking about the mirror of your soul. Have you taken a hard look at your soul? I have. There have been times when I came face to face with my soul and wanted to hide. I am selfish, proud, and stubborn, and those are my good points. When we see our souls as God sees our souls, then we know we need a Savior. In moments like those, I need to know that the Savior cleanses me in times of admission. So, friends... Admit your sin and accept his cleansing. There is no sin so great that his grace is not greater still. I am so thrilled that our Savior cleanses us from sin by his marvelous, infinite fountain of grace. 